Psalm 22. Listen carefully to the language. It is a psalm of David, but it's not a psalm of David. It begins, the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shard and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word, that you who stands outside of time can speak into it whenever and however you please. And Lord, like so many other messianic texts, This one stands out in all of its brilliance, Lord. So I pray that, Lord, you would help us to be just sobered by what you have put into the text in advance of all the events. Lord, that you'd use it to encourage our hearts. Help us to understand, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 is undoubtedly what we call a messianic psalm. 
meaning that its, its contents refer to things concerning the Messiah, uh, who he is, uh, what he did, or what was done to him, as you see in the text itself. Uh, now, this should not surprise us, seeing that after the resurrection, Jesus said something very interesting to the disciples. He said this. He says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that is, prior to the cross, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. It's not just Moses who prophesied about Jesus in Matthew chapter, uh, not Matthew, but Deuteronomy chapter 18, speaking of the prophet who was to come. It's not just the, the, the prophets themselves, like, you know, Isaiah 9 and 11 and uh, Isaiah 53 and Jeremiah 31 and Micah 5, 2, and, you know, on and on and on the prophets go. But Jesus says, not just the law, not just the prophets, but the Psalms themselves, everything that was spoken of me must be fulfilled. It must be. Things in the Psalms were written about him. And then uh, the next verse in the passage there in Luke, it says that he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Well, like them, we have the Holy Spirit, and so it is for us to uh, comprehend the scriptures, and that's what we want to do tonight. We know that Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm for a number of reasons. First, the things mentioned in the psalm did not happen to David. They're spoken in the first person, but none of these things happened to David. It's very interesting. Uh, he wasn't tortured by his enemies. Uh, he wasn't executed by way of the piercing of his hands and his feet. Those are the things that happened to Jesus. The, the words of verse 1 were actually quoted by Jesus when he was on the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, again in Mark 15, 34, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, now that statement in itself is just filled with redemptive significance. We'll talk about it a little bit. Third, uh, the events mentioned in verse 18, where the clothing of the victim the, the executioners cast lots for the clothing. That took place in John 19, 24, right at the foot of the cross. How cruel is that? To strip a, a person completely naked. I know that in our Hollywood picture, Jesus has a loincloth on. It's not the way the Romans did it. The point of crucifixion wasn't just to shame or torture the victim and kill them. It was to shame them. So they were completely naked on the cross. And so they took his clothes and they essentially gambled for them. And then the statement in verse 22 are the words of Jesus after the resurrection, as the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 2 verse 12. It's after the, the story of redemption, that after he has finished the mission that his father has given to him, that he says to those that have trusted in him, I am not ashamed to proclaim you uh, in the presence of all my brethren. Isn't that amazing? So when we call this a messianic psalm, it's not like a, a shot in the dark. It's not wishful thinking. David is providing this first person when he falls under inspiration of the Spirit. But it's somebody else's story. Yeah. There are many other places in the Old Testament that we know that are what we, we call typology. It's typical of Jesus. It means that the stories and the statements were divinely embedded in the text for the very purpose of pointing to Christ. They're throughout the Psalms. They're throughout uh, other portions of scripture. Some are obvious. Uh, some of them uh, you have to look at a little more closely. Um, but then there are passages, 
many other passages. Some people insist are types of Christ, but they're not. Maybe you've heard a, a, a pastor say, this is a type of Christ, and this is a type of Christ, and they can't get through a sermon without saying everything in an Old Testament narrative is a type of Christ. Um, be very wary of people that do that. Uh, if they cannot prove that it is a type of Christ from the text itself, there's a problem. And so always demand that they prove it. Otherwise, it just becomes this crazy thing. Uh, somebody breathed, uh, and so that was a type of Christ. Uh, somebody threw a spear, and so that was a type of Christ. If, if you cannot prove it from the text, or if a New Testament author doesn't look back at that and, and bring some kind of connection, just relax. Okay? Don't get too excited about it. If there's no real, real way to prove it, no imagination uh, can make it a type. But if it's obvious by a plain reading of the passage, or a New Testament author says something, you're good to go. When it comes to Psalm 22, no caution is needed, okay? Not at all. It's just, it's clear from the text. Uh, even if uh, New Testament authors didn't look back, we would see it unravel in the narrative of Jesus' suffering and execution. The story just unravels there. So in terms of typology, I, I believe that no psalm speaks with as much clarity as Psalm 22. Let me give you an example of this. I was, um, I was in the Lord for a couple years, and I was schooling, and I was working at uh, the Wyoming State Hospital, and I got to work with a number of interesting people, not just with the people that live there, but employees. But one of the, my coworkers was a, a, a Jewish man, and he knew that I was in Bible college, and he began to criticize pastors because they didn't really know that much about the Old Testament. And... Uh, at least compared to him. And so I asked him, I said, well, as a Jew, uh, what, do you, what do you do with all of the fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament regarding the person, the life, the work, birth, and all of that of Christ? And uh, he, of course, didn't believe that there were any. And so I brought him to Isaiah 53, and then I brought him to Psalm 22. Now, his reaction to those passages demonstrated that he didn't know as much about the Old Testament as he had thought. And uh, so after reading Psalm 22, uh, especially verse 16 together, he said to me, that never happened to David. That's right. No, it didn't. Uh, it didn't happen to anyone in Israel for another 800 years. 800 years. Uh, when Israel was taken over by Rome, the, actually the earliest examples of crucifixion uh, are found in the 6th century B.C. by the Persians. Uh, but David even lived 400 years uh, prior to that, and yet he's describing crucifixion. Uh, me and this gentleman, we also looked at Isaiah 53 and many other uh, messianic prophecies. But it was Psalm 22 that got him. And, uh, and as, a, as a Jewish man, he recognized the authority of the divine authority of the Old Testament. And he said, I'm going to have to rethink Jesus. I said, yes, you will. And uh, so when it comes to um, the Old Testament, there's so much evidence pertaining to the, the life of Christ that uh, it's very difficult. If you've ever read Jewish commentary trying to explain away the text, and that's typically what it is. Rather than telling you what the text means, they're compelled to tell you what it does not mean. And uh, they know for one, one thing that it, it does not speak of Christ. And at the end of the day, there's not a lot of clarity about who it does speak of. Uh, but the statements, many of them are so definitive and they're so uh, obviously speaking of the life of Christ that there's, it, it requires quite the gymnastics 
to get away from it. And uh, so when you meet people that are honest, they're much easier to talk to. But Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, many, many other, other passages. Another thing, the, as uh, Isaac taught Psalm 20 and 21, uh, and now that we're into 22, you see this huge contrast between them. Psalm 20 and 21 are about the king's victory. Uh, Psalm 21 reads a lot like Psalm 2, the great messianic psalm, not regarding Jesus' suffering, but all of those victories over the enemies of God. But Psalm 22 is just about his suffering, at least the first, the first half. There's no defeating of, of enemies in this particular psalm. So it's interesting, you know, how do we go from his eternal victory, as Psalm 21 says, to suffering? Chronologically, that makes no sense. Well, you have to understand that the Psalms, when they were compiled, they weren't compiled in any kind of historical sequence. Okay? They were compiled, and um, uh, they, I, don't, I don't know why the Holy Spirit compiled them the way they did, but this is the way that we, we have them. Uh, you know, Psalm 2, for example, is first in line of all of the messianic psalms, uh, but it refers to the last things in the world. It, re- it refers to the final victory of God over evil and death and all of that. So Psalm 20, 21, 22, there's no historical chronology at all. Also, Messiah's suffering in Psalm 22 is not to be confused with defeat, defeat, not to be confused. He was, Jesus was sent to suffer. He was sent to die, a thing that uh, Scripture says was well-planned before the foundations of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8, it says that the Lamb, speaking of Christ, was slain before the foundations of the world. So in the, in the mind of God, in His predetermination, in His providence for the sinfulness of man, this was already planned out. God was preparing it way in advance. So Jesus came to die, so He accomplished His mission flawlessly. In fact, it was through death that he defeated death. Uh, I think that what we sh- when it comes to the, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we need to see it as the first parts of a series of victories in the story of redemption. Because he's not done yet. Okay? We still know uh, there's parts of Romans 8, um, all of Revelation, at least from uh, chapter 5 to the end, or 4 to the end, still needs to be fulfilled. And uh, as you've noticed, there's still death in the world. There's still sin in the world. Uh, plenty of evil going on. And Jesus will eventually crush that and then bring about something altogether new. Now, uh, one other thing I want to point out here, um, Alan Ross, he's a Dallas theological guy. He points out something very unusual about this psalm that is not typical of Davidic psalms. He says the interesting feature of this psalm is that it does not include one word of confession of sin and no imprecation or curses against enemies. It's primarily the account of a righteous man who is being put to death by wicked men. Now, when we read the Psalms of David, David was never reluctant in his writings to confess his sin. But there's no mention of any failure on the part of this individual. Okay? Also, whenever David's enemies harassed him, he always called down the curses of God upon them because the enemies outside were coming against the covenant people of God. It was their land. Uh, they had rights to it. They were called to defend it. And so David had a divine right to call down God's wrath and fury 
upon the enemies of Israel. But there's none of that in this psalm. Well, Jesus is the only one who never sinned, and therefore he had no sin to confess. David's not telling his story, his own story. He's telling Jesus's. Also, unlike David, Jesus never cursed those who persecuted him. Just as Isaiah 53 says, he was like a sheep before its shearers. He was silent. He did not insult. Peter talks about that. When he was insulted, he did not reciprocate. Isaiah 53, 7. Instead of cursing his persecutors, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is different. It's the ultimate story of evil trying to snuff out good. But this is the good triumphing over evil. Let's look at the text. And like I said, I don't know how far I'm going to get tonight. I think I bit off more than I could chew. To the chief musician, whoever he was, set to the deer of the dawn, if that's your translation, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? So to begin with, it it begins by saying the deer of the dawn. Uh, This is either a title or a tune to which the music was played. We don't know which, which one. Some believe that the title could refer to the nature of the person in the psalm, okay? as a deer that is harmless and innocent, but is hunted and devoured uh, by the hunter, so too the victim of the psalm was targeted, murdered, and devoured, as it were. Uh, this is speculation. Uh, it's appropriate, but we don't know that that's exactly what it means. If it refers to a tune to which the psalm was sung or how the instrument was played, we just don't know. I wish that we had, I would just like to know how it all sounded. You know, we can listen, I mean, you can listen to Hebrew people, Jews even, uh, sing the Psalms in Hebrew, but we don't know to what tune it was set. And um, the chief musician would know, and so would David. So I wonder perhaps when we enter into heaven, if we won't get a taste of that, whatever. Have you guys heard of the sons of Korah? I don't mean the authors of some of the Psalms, and I certainly don't mean the sons of Korah in the book of Numbers who were eaten by the earth. Um, it's an Australian group that sing uh, word for word out of the Psalms. And uh, some of them are very good. Uh, I imagine it's very difficult to just sing the Psalms word for word. How many of you guys grew up Presbyterian? Did you do Psalm sing as a part of your tradition? Okay, well, some Presbyterians, especially uh, very conservative Reformed Presbyterians, they still do that. Uh, as a church, they do psalm sing. And I've never actually listened to it, but um, I've had friends that have tried to get me to do it, but they're asking the wrong guy because I have no music ability at all. And so for me to try to, I just don't know where to begin. So if any of you uh, have that kind of ability, let's rock the house. Amen. So, because this is the worship hymn, the Psalms for Israel. So anyway, The psalm itself actually begins with desperation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lama, lama, or Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, is what Jesus said uh, from the cross. He says, then from the words of my groaning. As we mentioned, these are Jesus' own words uh, from the cross in Matthew 27, 46. All of the words are Jesus's. Um, They're just spoken here by David. He's actually filling the role of a prophet, filling the role of a prophet. Um, Something that is interesting about David's life when we read um, his story 
is David often found himself in a desperate situation, but never forsaken. Not one time. David never suffered defeat. He was never triumphed over by an enemy. He was victorious every time he went to battle. So at times desperate, but never forsaken, never defeated. Cannot be his story. The des- this desperate cry, it's stated as a question, is interesting because God promised that he would never forsake his people. Deuteronomy 31, 6 through 8. But this promise could not apply to Jesus at this particular moment. It applied beyond this at his resurrection. But at this moment, Jesus was exempt from the promise. He was exempt. He was forsaken by his father. He was left to die at the hands of wicked men. As Peter said to the Sanhedrin, he said, you killed the prince of life. He was forsaken. But you see, if the father rescued Jesus from condemnation at the cross, he could not have rescued us from the condemnation of sin at the final judgment. That's what this is all about. Peter said that when Jesus was on the cross, that he, was, he became like a funnel for all the sins of the world, not just of the present, but every sin committed during the time of Adam to the last sin that will ever be committed. But all of it, he said, every bit of it was born in his body. The just one gave his life for the unjust. And when Jesus took all the sins of the world upon him, at that moment, the father forsook him and then poured his wrath out upon him. If Jesus was not forsaken, we could not have been rescued from sin. You remember that Jesus cried out to the Father in the garden. He said, if it is possible, let this cup pass before me. The cup of wrath. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. This was the path that was chosen for Christ by his Father. That, that Jesus in eternity, he, he, he volunteered for. He would have to be forsaken in judgment. He knew this if we were to be rescued from it. Uh, Chris Tomlin saying, um, I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. And you think that if God were to ever answer the prayer of anyone, it would have been the prayer of his son. But understand God does nothing apart from his will. It was ordained. It was ordained. And Jesus knew that. That's why he said, nevertheless, not my will, the will of a man who's about to endure all of this suffering, but your will. Some say that Jesus, you know, cried out in these words, uh, to trigger the memory of those who were observing him on the cross so they would uh, think of Psalm 22 and then go and read the text and research its contents and thus discovering we always knew this wasn't speaking of David. It was speaking of Christ. That's a possibility. Uh, but I actually think that it's more uh, along the lines that Jesus is a man enduring such suffering, being abandoned, was crying out in desperation. To think of the, the misery that he was enduring, um, it's crazy. He knew what was happening. He knew what was being done to him. He knew that he was being judged for the sins of the world. Um, tremendous. Can't imagine. He says, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and I am not silent. Now, as you follow the, the narrative in the Gospels, Jesus' groaning actually began you know, the night before his crucifixion. It began in the garden. It says where his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was praying in agony. But there in the garden, there was, there was no answer. There was no answer. What had been determined by his father was set in motion, and there's just no stopping it. 
Now, something you have to consider, if Jesus' will, his actual desire, was contrary to his father's, his father's will, as he prayed in the garden, I think maybe by the, we don't know the geography of Israel, um, but understand that Jesus, they had, the Last Supper, they had left Jerusalem, they'd crossed the, the Kidrid Valley, they'd climbed the Mount of Olives to uh, Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, you stay here, and I'm going to go yonder and pray. If Jesus' will was actually opposed to his father's, he could have just kept walking in the direction of Jericho. And they could have crossed the Jordan, and he would have been beyond the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin. It was nighttime. He could have escaped, and nobody would have seen him. The disciples were asleep. He could have made his way to Jericho. Those boys would have woken up in the morning, and Jesus would have been gone. His will was not opposed to his father. It says when Jesus was done praying, he stood up, he walked back to the disciples, and he said, get up, let's go. Look, my betrayer is here. And Jesus walked right up to Judas, knowing exactly what was going to happen. And he says, here I am. And he surrendered. Of course, Peter didn't go for it. Okay, Peter had to start chopping ears off and stuff. And uh, as we would have as well, just complete surrender to his father's will. What a man. And then shortly after his arrest, they began to torture him. And it went on through the night and into the next day, all the way until he drew his final breath at Calvary. But there was no answer from his father. You ever given a command to your child and, and they want to talk about it? Now, I'm not going to reduce Jesus to the immaturity of our children, but you're not talking to them because they haven't done what you've asked them to do. There is nothing to talk about until obedience has been done. And so... There's silence. Well, the Father and Jesus really didn't have anything to talk about. It's been addressed in eternity. Jesus volunteered to be born of a virgin in the city of Bethlehem, in poverty, to be a refugee to Egypt, right? And then to grow up in poverty in Nazareth, a place of no reputation. To grow up as a man of no reputation, to be rejected, to be criticized, to be abandoned, to be tortured. This was all in the plan. He told his disciples, we're going back to Jerusalem and they will deliver me over to the Gentiles to be crucified. It was all planned. Charles Wesley wrote in his great hymn, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Now, Wesley did not mean that God actually perished, but that Christ, that God in man, the man died in our place. Indeed, amazing love. Psalm 22, verse 3. This is so interesting. Jesus then appeals to God's holiness, but you are holy and you're enthroned in the praises of Israel. Wow. You know, Mike talked a little bit on Sunday about, you know, some of the responses to God when we don't get the answer that we want. He said that some people draw closer to God, some people become sullen, some people just downright reject the Lord. But Jesus, he hears nothing, which is an answer, isn't it? He appealed to his father's holiness when there was no answer. What an interesting place to go. What an interesting thing to refer to in the midst of his suffering. He didn't waver in faith, not in his father's faithfulness or anything. Not because his father forsook him. I mean, Jesus clearly was determined, was he not? He set his face like a flint, it says, for Jerusalem. He knew the cost. But what he does is he, in the silence of God, he, uh, he appeals to God's Holiness. That's interesting. Why a reference, do you think, to God's holiness? But you are holy. You are holy. Of course, no one understood Jesus or God's holiness like 
Jesus. Yeah. You know, it is the holiness of God that actually demands the judgment for sin. Yeah. No other attribute of God seeks for justice. Now, love would seek to rescue, but the love of God can never rescue apart from justice. So God's holiness stands there as this thing in the way of everything. Sin must be judged. Unrighteousness cannot go free. Something has to happen. And as Paul teaches in Romans, God can either execute judgment on the sinner or he can provide a perfect substitute to stand in the sinner's place in judgment. Paul makes this amazing statement in Romans 3, 25 through 26. He says that God the Father, he presented Christ. Now the word presented is often used in the context of offering a sacrifice. He presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God did this to demonstrate his own righteousness, that is, his justice, same Greek word, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He presented his son, the New King James says, as a propitiation. The word propitiation means to appease wrath. The the holiness of God was demanding that sin be punished. His his vengeance against sin, he's just boiling over in wrath against it. He hates it. And he presented his son as the substitute, the perfect sacrifice to appease his wrath so that justice could be done. And so that when he forgives a, a, a person, there's no violation of justice. It's, it's, it's crazy. Who's the author that talks about the insanity of God? That he would go to the rescue of rebels? Yeah. So the most appropriate thing to appeal to in the context of judgment for sin, it is the holiness of God. It is. Jesus knows that love cannot circumnavigate justice. Now love is probably the thing that motivated God to send Jesus. Yeah. Jesus also says that God is enthroned in the praises of Israel. Notice that it does not say that God is enthroned by the praises of Israel. You see, Israel's praises do not place God on his throne. You get it? God enthrones himself. Uh, You know, we sing, we exalt thee, but God is not changed somehow by us worshiping him. He isn't made higher and higher. Now, in our minds, in our hearts, he he may... find himself at a more elevated status, but he hasn't really changed. He's just become more exalted to us. So worship does not elevate God to a higher position. Worship simply recognizes God's exaltedness and then praises him for it. And when we do that, he honors us with his presence. You understand? He honors us with his presence. He enthrones himself among us as he pleases. So here's this transition now, uh, Again, here in the psalm, it says, Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Now, Jesus looks back to God's historical faithfulness to the fathers of the nation with the expectation that God will be faithful again. And God will be faithful to Jesus, just not in the same way. Not in the same way. Yeah. In Psalm 16, which is another messianic psalm. Verse 11 says this. It's, it's the Messiah speaking again. He says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, that is the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That means 
Father, I know that you will not let me rot in the grave. Everybody else will, but not me. So the promise about Messiah is not that he will be delivered from judgment, but that he will not be left in the grave. It's the promise of the resurrection. He'll be raised from the dead, and then he'll be replaced to, he'll be restored to his place of honor. The next verse in Psalm 16 says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Messiah looked beyond the grave to the place of God's right hand. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He looked through it all. He knew that God's faithfulness lied elsewhere to him. So there was no faltering on God's side of this. So he says, you delivered the fathers. But then he looks to himself. He says, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So, of course, this is the perspective of the people as, as Jesus primarily, you know, when he was on the cross. Of course, when he was on trial, he was treated less than human. He was mocked. Remember, they dressed him in purple, which is the color of, of royalty. Because remember, they were, he's the king of the Jews. Oh, you're a king? Really? And they put a crown of thorns on his head. And then they struck and whipped him. He was beaten beyond recognition. He was, as it were, a worm in their eyes. They despised him. The treatment that we deserved was laid upon him. This is all the languages of Isaiah 53 regarding the suffering of Messiah. If you think that Psalm 22 is descriptive about his suffering, Psalm 53 is way beyond all of that. But Psalm 53 is, is just infused with all kinds of theology, penal theology and um, uh, substitutional or vicarious theology. It says, Isaiah 53 says, he was despised and rejected by man. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The words of verse 8 uh, were shouted uh, in Matthew 27, 43 uh, to mock Jesus. So it's, it's a recording in advance of what would be said to Jesus on the cross. That God could not spare him the anguish and shame if he were to save any of us. But Jesus paid no attention to the ridicule. Instead, he turned his attention to the truth. He looks beyond the ridicule and he says, but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. That's interesting. None of us can claim that, by the way. He was saying that when I was in my mother's womb, you were my God. Yeah. Jesus knew the Father from conception. Very interesting. So we have the perspective of Jesus' executioners. Now let's look at how Jesus described those who were against him. He says to the Father, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there's none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan. Bashan was uh, east and north of the Sea of Galilee, the, the, the fertile plains there. He says, They've encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Now, of course, this is all uh, poetic languages, figures of speech. I don't know exactly uh, what the Jew at that time thought when they heard of these terms, but I think I know enough about uh, strong bulls uh, 
that they can gore with their horns. And bulls are described as dangerous creatures uh, in the Bible. In fact, if a bull gored someone uh, in Israel, the bull was to be executed. It's a law uh, in in the the Torah. Uh, Of course, lions uh, that would prey upon him and devour him. In verse 16, he describes his executioner as dogs, uh, the idea of to abuse and kill him for sport. Uh, You notice dogs oftentimes kill things, but then don't do anything with it. Um, So this very picturesque thing. And he says, all together, these make up the congregation of the wicked. He says that in verse 16. And he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. So the language here, of course, is just of extreme weakness, of exhaustion and dehydration. Uh, Now, when you put all of the narratives together and the amount of of time that that, uh, all of it took place in, Jesus bled heavily uh, from early morning until he died in the afternoon, just bleeding all day. We know that he was scourged with the the cat of nine tails. Uh, He was was beaten. Uh, He was, and then forced to carry the, 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 vertical, or the horizontal beam of the cross. Um, by the description of what he suffered, it's unlikely that he would have survived even if they did not crucify him. He, his, his back was so opened up um, that there was just nothing to help an infection that would set in. He was so, it was so brutal. Uh, we know from historical records that criminals were often killed under scourging Uh, Not just because it was brutal, but because the soldiers did not want to attend a crucifixion all day. So what they would do is they would either kill them there by scourging, or they would so abuse their body that they would die quickly on the cross. It's crazy. And then if they did make it to the cross and the soldiers were weary of watching people die, uh, they would often break their legs to accelerate asphyxiation. Because the way that they would breathe on the cross is, you know, of course, they would slouch onto their knee, deeper into their knees, and they would have to push up to breathe. And so if you broke their legs, they couldn't prop themselves up to breathe. Oftentimes, they would puncture a lung or the heart. On the day that Jesus was crucified, the bodies had to be removed before the Sabbath, so they broke the legs of the two thieves. When they got to Jesus, they discovered that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. They did run a spear into him to confirm, and uh, yeah, oh, I got some right here. And it says that you know, water gushed out. Uh, probably during all of his suffering, the, the pericardium around his heart had filled with fluid. And that's probably what came out of the wound. It may be a reference here to where it says that uh, my heart has melted within me like wax. I don't know. That, it doesn't uh, relate that to uh, the narrative of Scripture. One of the interesting things is that uh, in the narrative, Jesus' legs weren't broken. This is important prophetically because the scriptures tell us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb could not have any of its bones broken. And uh, so they passed by Jesus and did not break his bones. And actually in crucifixion, when they, when they fasten the victim to the cross, they don't go through the hand. Uh, there's no Greek word for this part here. What they did is the, the nails would go through here and we actually, I meant to have a picture of that. There's a, a, 
a hand was found in Israel from the first century. And, or no, it's the ankle, the ankle. And the nail is still in it, and the tip was bent over. And so they believe that um, the reason that, that the, the nail wasn't removed is because of that bend. Typically, they removed it because iron was worth so much at the time. Uh, recently, they found one in England. Yeah, in England. So, and it's, this is, it's, it's sad history, but it's important because uh, for a long time, they, they said they didn't, they didn't actually fasten criminals to crosses with nails, that they would just rope their arms and feet to them. No, now we have two examples of bones with nails still in them from antiquity. Yeah, crazy stuff. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 is where it says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And it's probably the, uh, of the reference that you know, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus walking by, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. All right, I know we're, we're up to our necks in this. I've got to stop. I'm already five minutes past. But um, yeah, go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Well, Lord Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that David would prophesy in this fashion because you called him a prophet. And David said on two occasions that, that the Holy Spirit spoke by him. And so, Lord, in advance, before anyone could possibly know, you recorded events a thousand years before they happened so that no one could accuse you of not leaving breadcrumbs, as it were, something to lead us to Calvary, that we might recognize Christ as the Savior, as the Son of God. And, Lord, I just pray that if anyone in here has doubts about you, the Lord, passages such as this where you have embedded your foreknowledge into the text, they would see the divine nature of your word. That as Peter says, that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke and they wrote things they could never know on their own. Lord, all of this recorded for us that we might trust you. And so Lord, those that do know you, I, I pray that these things would encourage them, that they would once again be fascinated and amazed by what you've done for our sake. So Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that it would encourage. It would, it would do all that you've purposed it to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have any questions.